0: So I repeat myself a lot because there are a handful of principles that mean a lot to me, sort of like a set of guidelines that make a big difference for how you read the scriptures. They were handed down to me by some very bright guys who understand the Bible really well. Honestly, I hope someday to know the scriptures like these guys do, and I'm sure that these principles will help me get there when I talk about the Bible, I mention them over and over again. So if you're paying attention, you'll hear me repeat things like, the Bible was written for farmers and for shepherds and for carpenters and for children. So you don't need to go to Bible college or seminary to understand the Bible. Uh, Or you'll hear me say, everything you need to understand the Bible is in the Bible. Or you'll hear me me say, read the Bible in large chunks. And you'll start to see themes you might have missed if you read one paragraph at a time. Or you'll hear me say, if you don't understand, start from the beginning and reread. These are just basic guidelines that help me to get it when I otherwise have no clue. But perhaps the most repeated guideline, the one that comes up most frequently, is this Your time in the Bible is only as valuable as the questions you ask of it. Your time in the Bible is only as valuable as the questions you ask. See, it's easy to to truck through whole sections of the Scriptures without truly understanding any of them. As a matter of fact, you can read almost anything that's written without truly understanding that thing if you aren't reading it critically. So it's important to ask questions of the Bible. Vitally important if you consider that these are the words words of God, and that these words of God are your only hope. And one of the questions you ought to ask is why? Things don't just happen for no reason. And people don't just act for no reason. And God doesn't just work and speak and move and save for no reason. So when you read the scriptures and you see people chasing after idols, you should ask, Why? And when you read the scriptures and you see the nations rising up against God's people, you should ask, why? And when you see God rallying, and when you see God rising in defense of His people, and rescuing His people, and sending His people a Savior, you should ask, why? All of those questions have answers. And every one of those answers could change the way you live and change the way you think about the world. Those answers could shatter your plans and set up a new hope. But without those questions, it's just a story. And if you're not careful, that story will have nothing to do with your day-to-day. This passage, the passage we're about to read, gives us a bunch of answers to that very important question, why? We've spent a lot of time watching. Watching Hannah weep in prayer. Watching Eli and his sons slowly corrupt the priesthood. Watching Samuel grow faithful and wise. Watching the people of Israel fail spectacularly. Watching their rejection of God culminate in a demand for a replacement king. Watching that replacement king fail spectacularly. And watching God rescue his people over and over again. Even though they've turned away from him over and over again. And as we were watching, we've been asking why. So now we've reached this pretty significant moment in the book because Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel, has formally handed the reins of leadership to Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And very briefly, there's this great rejoicing when the people celebrate their new king in a display of great confidence and hope. But then the camera pans to Samuel, who is nearly ready to walk off the stage. But before he fades into the background of this story, he gives a retirement speech. And right here, in this moment, Samuel is about to give you Answers to all the whys you've been collecting. Read it with me. Everybody turn to 1 Samuel 12. Hold up your Bible when you get there. Or your phone. Read with me. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made you... "...have made a king over you. And now, behold, that king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed?" Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. What a way to start a speech, right? (laughs) Right off the bat, this thing reads not like a retirement speech, but more like a forced retirement speech, if you know what I mean. Listen to what he says. I did everything you asked me to do, including training my replacement. I've worked hard on your behalf since I was a child. Tell me, have I taken your stuff? Have I oppressed you? Have I taken a bribe? Think about what is implied in these questions. He's walking out the door, cardboard box in hand, asking, have I wronged you? Have I taken taken something of yours? Have I acted unjustly? Implied, he's asking, why have you rejected me? Listen to their answer. You've not done anything wrong. You've not taken anything. And that answer is an indictment. Because the people of God have rejected the man of God for no good reason, by their own admission. In a way, that answers one of the central questions of this book. And that question is, why do God's people reject the man of God? Why is Samuel not good enough? Why do they demand a replacement king? At least part of that answer is captured here. Not because of anything Samuel's done. Not because of anything Samuel's not done. Samuel led well. Samuel served well. Samuel didn't take anything that wasn't his. He hasn't been corrupt. He hasn't misjudged. He hasn't taken a bribe or corrupted justice. They're looking at him and saying, "Samuel, it's not you, it's me." And the people swear it before God and everybody. Now that's significant enough. But these questions, these questions that Samuel asks, they carry a lot of weight because they're directly related to the warnings Samuel issued when the people were demanding a king. Do you remember? Be careful. Be warned. If you ask for a king, you may have one, but he'll take your sons and your daughters and he'll take your stuff. You're handing off your livelihood and your freedom when you take this king. They didn't care back then, and now that they have their king... Samuel asks these questions in particular. And in a way, he's reminding them that the oxen and the donkeys that he hasn't taken and the bribes that he's refused, that sort of justice is not the thing that they should expect from this point forward. And when they find themselves oppressed and crushed by the replacement king, they'll look back on this day and remember that the man of God was just and he was good. Remember, men of Israel, remember that you've rejected me, though I've been kind and patient and fair, though I've cared for you and prayed for you, though I've not taken anything. You rejected me for one who will take your stuff and who will stifle your freedom. Okay, keep reading. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Okay, before we get into the content of Samuel's pleas, can we talk for a moment about how merciful is God that he sends his prophet to plea with the people yet again in this situation? Step back for a moment and consider how much mercy is being poured out here. This is a people who have systematically rejected God on every level, though He's carefully and lovingly delivered them from oppression, and He set them in a land flowing with milk and honey. They have hated Him, and they have run to idols and to the nations with vigor. And rather than turn away from them, and release them to, the, to their rebellion, God sends message after message of mercy. And here, when their rejection has culminated in a replacement king, the prophet of God pleads with his people. He says, Stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. What a brilliant display of mercy! In the midst of their rebellion, hold still, hold still, people, hold still for a moment, just so I can remind you of God's righteous acts of kindness, without which you would still be bound as slaves. Gaze, gaze upon it for a moment. God is pleading with his people while they're rejoicing over his replacement. What a picture! Of steadfast love. God fights for his people, though they kick and scream and shake their fists. Such mercy, such kindness and love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is who God is, this is what God is like. Don't be fooled by the masses who ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? That's the wrong question. That's a bad question. It's broken and it's crafted by broken men in a broken world. How can people, in the face of such mercy and kindness and love, how can people continue to reject God? That's the right question when we attempt to explore the character of God, we should be facing in the right direction. God is kind and He is patient and He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn from their wicked way and live. And God has painted a thousand portraits of His love in the mountains, in the clouds, in the rains that fall, and He's issued a thousand invitations to come, run to my stronghold. Escape the coming storm by running toward the God who saves and forgives and not away from Him. It's it's only a wicked people that could suggest of a God so merciful and kind and patient, only a wicked people could suggest that our condemnation is His fault. He's shouting after sons and daughters as they're taking His stuff and cursing His name. He's shouting after them not to leave Him because it's dangerous out there in the darkness. That's the God we serve. All right, keep reading. When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. Okay, stop for a moment and think about these words because this pattern should feel familiar to you. Jacob went to Egypt and his sons and his daughters were oppressed. And so they cried out to God and God sent saviors. They were delivered out of slavery and brought into a good land, but then they forgot the Lord their God. Here's another outstanding answer to one of our major whys. Why does Israel turn away from God over and over again? Why? You watch it unfold like a nightmare. Why are you turning away? The answer? Because they forgot Him. They forgot the Lord their God. Now, that's not the only answer, as we'll soon see, but that's an important answer. They forgot the Lord who saved them. We are a forgetful people, aren't we? Look, if you're, if you're in Christ, you have known breathtaking rescue. We are who we are and we are where we are because at some point we realized our captivity and we cried out to God and asked for help. And He sent rescue to us and He is patiently walking with us through a wilderness to a promised land. And yet daily we forget whatever it is that you run to that isn't God. Just like Israel, we run to the nations. Right? I do it. When we're feeling pressed and stressed out, when we're tired, when we're afraid, rather than running to the stronghold or to the throne of grace, we run to the nations and we run to the stuff of the nations and we run to the promises of the nations. And in part, that's because we've forgotten. Reflection is a discipline for the people of God. Remember on purpose regularly. It's important to remember. Throughout the Scriptures, we find memorials, feasts, and celebrations, and ceremonies, and fasting, and sculptures, and works of art that only exist to help the people of God remember the rescue of God. So that when we dig in, and we tip our glasses, and when we hear those words, and when we pass that memorial, we remember the work of God upon which our lives depend. You're not exempt, Christian From the requirement to remember. Sometimes I think that Christians believe that because Christ has fulfilled the law, we have less to do, less to concern ourselves with. That's not true. Christ indeed has fulfilled the law so that we could be free to follow him without restraint. Our pursuit of the kingdom should be more intentional, more intentional than the mandated feasts and fasts and memorials in the law. So set memorials often. Eat on purpose. Drink on purpose. Reflect on purpose. Hang art on your walls on purpose. Feast and fast on purpose to remember. So that our story doesn't sound like their story. May we, by the grace of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, never forget the faithfulness of God to rescue His people when they are in need. So that when we're stressed, we don't run to pornography or to adultery. When we're stressed, we don't scream at each other angrily in our homes. But when we're stressed, we run to the throne of grace and say, I don't know what to do here. Please help me, please. Keep reading. And God sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, that we may serve you. Why do the nations rage against the people of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question as you read through the Old Testament? It's just almost always a war. (laughs) There's always an enemy at Israel's boundaries. There's always a force threatening the people of God. Have you ever asked why the nations seem so intent on the destruction of Israel? This is why the Lord has sold His people to the nations in order that they'd remember His work and cry out to Him for deliverance. Look, God cares so deeply about His people that He's willing to allow them to suffer great pain so that they will turn to Him in dependence. The suffering... Of the people of God is never on accident. His purpose to rescue his enemies from their sin involves rescuing them from enemies often. If you intend on following Christ, it's good to know that it means suffering. And sometimes that suffering is staggering and overwhelming. And sometimes that suffering appears unjust and unwarranted. Yet all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And God cares so deeply about the rescue and deliverance of His people that He's willing to allow them to suffer terribly on the way to glory. The, the nations rise against the people of God because there is sin in their heart, indeed. Yet God allows that sin to manifest in declarations of war because that's what it takes sometimes for his sons and daughters to realize their desperate need and to cry out for him. Keep reading. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. "...and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." You lived in safety. He sent rescuers, and you lived in safety, because you cried out, and He was faithful. When armies were encroaching the boundaries of Israel, you cried out, and He was faithful to deliver you, and you lived in safety." Now, take note of that, because we're about to hinge on these words. Keep reading. But when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you Have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Okay, so here's the problem. Every time you descended in sin, Israel, every time you chased the nations and they turned against you, every time you cried out, I delivered you. Every time. And you are okay with that safety and that deliverance and that provision, but not now. Now, God isn't good enough. And now the safety that God gave isn't good enough. And now the people demand a replacement. And so, you've got Him, Israel. He's here now. But ask yourselves, was my provision not enough? Was the safety that I provided not enough? Did I ask too much of you? We see now that Samuel, who is just laid out very clearly that He did nothing to deserve the people's rejection, has just laid out very clearly that God did nothing to deserve the people's rejection. What they were seeking in a replacement king is something that God had already provided, free of oppression, and free of theft, and free of slavery. He's making sure they know. He's making sure they know that the God they've rejected has Cared for them faithfully and has protected them carefully. God has done nothing to deserve their rejection, nothing. He has never forsaken his people. God has never forsaken his people. Samuel's making sure they know that the God they're turning away from is faithful to rescue his people because the king they're turning towards is not. He is not faithful. The replacement king is not faithful to rescue his people. Indeed, he's not faithful at all. And that warning is terrifying when you read what comes next. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. Oh no. That isn't happy news. The people of Israel have had hard enough time remembering the faithless of God when led by prophets and judges who themselves were God's gifts. They haven't been faithful even when their leaders were themselves signs of God's faithfulness and provision. How much harder will it be for the people to treasure God when they're led by a replacement king who doesn't know God and who doesn't love Him? There are moments like this throughout the history of Israel. Moments when the prophet says to the people, look, if you just serve God and obey His voice, things will go well for you. But rarely do you read those words without the following warning. But when you turn away. When. The law is interesting this way. Because it sets up expectations for the people that are impossible to meet without the true King of Israel. The righteousness that the law calls for is impossible outside of the kingdom of God without the true king. And therein lies the purpose of the law. The, the law was never given to save them, the law was given to keep them, to restrain them until the true king arrives. The true king, he's the only one capable of fulfilling the law. When the people attempt to fulfill the law and fail, they'll longingly seek the true king of Israel. And that's the point. But right now, the people aren't under the true king of Israel. They've demanded a replacement king. So this choice is less of a choice than it is a warning. Keep reading. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Now I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves as a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I don't think it's an accident that stand still is repeated here. The first stand still, stand still and remember the righteousness of God. The second, stand still. Stand still and know that your wickedness is great. That's the story of the gospel in two parts. Behold your wickedness. Behold His righteousness. Their response, believe it or not, is right on. Pray for your servants that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. This little, micro, this little moment, I think, is a microcosm of the gospel story. We, too, are wicked before God. We, too, have demanded replacement kings. We, too, have forgotten the kindness and love and care of God who created us, who gave us life, who has given us bread to eat and water to drink, whose rain has fallen on our crops. We have forgotten and forsaken and we have demanded replacements. We too are wicked before God and God is yet righteous. His righteousness, not ours, is our only hope. Stand still and behold the righteousness of God and the wickedness of man. Stand still and consider that we were beggars and wretches when Christ came and rescued us and took our sin and gave us His righteousness and promised us an overwhelming inheritance. There is only one appropriate response when we see our wickedness clearly. And when we see the righteousness and kindness and faithfulness of God to rescue His people, there's only one appropriate response. Pray for your servants that we may not die. We are at the mercy of the anointed, just like they were. That's the situation we're in. We're at the mercy of the Messiah for rescue. (laughs) Only the mercy of God in display in the rescue of the anointed. When the people of Israel look to the anointed prophet of God and plea for intercession, they got it right. Right in that moment, they got it. The intercession of the prophet of God, that's their only hope. Now, listen to Samuel's response. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. For a speech that started out rough, this is one heck of an ending. Brilliant. It's beautiful. Take a breath and gaze on the mercy and kindness of God. Do not be afraid. Can you imagine more beautiful words after this rebuke? The people have just very quickly shifted from delirious celebration to sober rebuke in no time. And in a moment they're confronted with their own rebellion and the hopelessness of their situation. It's staggering. They're paralyzed with fear. Yet in four words they're offered hope. Do not be afraid. And don't miss what follows. Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. Look, there's two two ways to comfort a sinner. You can tell them that it's okay. It's gonna be okay because it's really not that bad. It's not like they committed murder or anything. They're just really, you're a good person, you just made a mistake. That's not gospel comfort. Don't, don't ever, if you hear those words coming out of your mouth, shut it down. Say, I was wrong, sorry, hang on. Gospel comfort says, yes, you have done this evil. But God will never forsake his people. I talking to Dale this morning and um, he has a loved one who said, I feel so guilty. And Dale looked at him and said, You are! <laughs> Praise the Lord! That's gospel hope. You are guilty. But God has been pleased to rescue a people for Himself and He will never forsake them for His great name's sake. The message of hope in this paragraph is awe inspiring yes you have done this evil stop it stop chasing after idols stop chasing after the pleasures of the nations those are empty things and they'll never satisfy you read read it again because this is a little funny do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty (laughs) that's funny don't Seek empty things because they're empty. They'll never satisfy you. But don't be afraid. For God will never forsake his people. Here's the the question. Get your questions out. Throw them on the table. Why? This is where the big question comes in. When the big question is pivotal for understanding this passage. Why? Why won't God forsake His people? i got to use the tissue. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. For His great name's sake. That's why... And because God is pleased to make you a people for Himself. Look, God is interested in teaching the world what He's like. And so He refuses to forsake His people. It's for His name's sake. And so all of creation will see with crystal clarity that God is able to save and that He's willing to save and that He's powerful to save. He is at work demonstrating His own worth that the world might see Him for who He is. That's why. That is good news for His people. Because all of the kindness and mercy that's on display to teach the world the character of God, all that care is poured out on a people that He is pleased to save. And that sentence, brothers and sisters, that sentence is your only hope. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Memorize that sentence. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Memorize it. That is your bright light. It's the lamp that shines on your feet in the valley of the shadow of death. And when you're tempted to despair because it feels in this moment that you cannot, you absolutely cannot rid yourself of sin, repeat these words. Do not fear. The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. That's your only hope. You hope in that sentence. In God's zeal for His great name and in God's pleasure to set apart a people. That's your only hope. It's not your ability to white-knuckle repentance. It's not your discipline. It's not your holiness. It's not your service. It's not your knowledge. It's not your education. It's not your reputation. And it's not your works. You can't do it. And if anything is clear, that much is clear. You can't do what it takes. Story of your life. Story of my life. Praise God that that's not our hope. Your hope is in God and in God's zeal for His character and His might. To be proclaimed throughout creation and in God's pleasure to set apart a people for Himself. That's your hope. And never forget that hope. One last thing. Keep reading. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord... And serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your King. The Lord works to save His people through the faithfulness of His anointed. The Lord works to save His people. How? The Lord is faithful to save His people. How? Through the faithfulness of His anointed. How does the Lord work to save His people? Through the faithfulness of His anointed. It's it's like two melodies in one movement. Like harmonies dancing with one another. The Lord will never forsake His people because He is zealous for His name and because He is pleased to make you a people. And He has seen fit to do it through the faithfulness of His anointed. The work of God is like an orchestra. The might and justice and love of God manifest in the faithfulness and intercession and sacrificial love of the anointed. Step back for a moment and watch what's happening. See, the people get it. They get that Samuel's work is their only hope and so they run to him. This prophet who they just rejected and replaced, they run to him terrified that he'll stop praying for for them. And listen to his response. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will teach you the good and right way. God is gracious to his people and he is merciful toward his people. And he will never forsake his people. And all that grace and all that mercy and all that steadfast love culminates in the work of the anointed. See, the people of Israel clung to the work of the anointed prophet of God, little P. But you and I proclaim the grace and mercy of God because we are benefactors of the anointed prophet of God, big P. Samuel was sent by God as a prophet of God to restrain and to keep his people and to make them ready for the true prophet of God. Prophet, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Because God chooses to accomplish His work through the faithful work of the Messiah. Just like Samuel was sent to keep God's people. Jesus was sent to redeem God's people. And He is faithful to do it. Praise God for the faithfulness of Christ to rescue the people of God. The zeal of God for His great name, the pleasure of God to rescue His people, all of these culminate in the mission of the anointed And just as the people of Israel cling desperately to Samuel because he is their only hope, so too we must cling desperately to Jesus because His work is our only hope. Only in His redemption, only in His intercession, only in His representation do we encounter the mercy and grace of God. And my prayer for you today is simple. I pray that you'll Find yourself like the people of Israel running to the anointed. Run to Him. Cling to His work. It is your only hope. He is faithful to represent you if you cling to Him. And in Him, you'll find all of the grace and mercy of God who is zealous to teach the world of His lovely character, and who is pleased to make you a people for himself. Praise God. Morris, will you come pray for us?